Hi, my name is Gunnar Froh and I'm your host on the Wonder Mobility Podcast. All right, welcome back to the Wonder Mobility Podcast. And today I'm with Caroline Seaton, co-founder of Human Forest. Welcome, Caroline. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast today. Human Forest, bike sharing in London, huge, uh, a scale-up by now. One of the very interesting operator cases in shared mobility worldwide, I would say. Not only are you guys growing at this time, but you're also doing some things differently um, from other operators. You have a few thousand bikes in London on the streets. You're going to expand into Paris. Um, and you have a branding uh, that's different from other operators and creating a community around you and also tapping into other revenue sources. Lots of uh, exciting uh, stuff to talk about and uh, very glad that you are taking uh, some time um, out of your day. Can you maybe introduce yourself a little bit in the beginning and your background and how you ended up there a few years ago with this team to found Human Forest? There is so much to unpack there in that introduction. So, so thank you very much for that. Um, <laughs> but I'll start. So my name's yeah, Caroline Seaton. Um, I came on this wonderful journey with my co-founders, Augustine and Michael, three and a half, three and a half years ago now um, when we founded Human Forest. What we really wanted to do with Human Forest was to give people a tangible way to improve their carbon footprint. I think when we think about environmental issues and the impact that climate change is, is having on our world, we can sometimes feel a bit overwhelmed. What is it that we can do to help solve and tackle this huge problem? And we really thought that we could transport is such a huge polluter, a huge contributor to these emissions. We really thought that with human forest, we can give people a tool to do that every day. And we decided that we would do it differently. And how we would really get people to embrace the service and to make that modal shift would be by giving this 10 minutes free every day for users. No strings attached, just 10 minutes free daily. And that is enabled by our ad platform, which as you sort of mentioned in the introduction, was something that was a little bit different about, about Human Forest. So our ad platform is allowing us to connect brands with our users and really enable that modal shift. So it's putting these brands at the center of our users' journey and really helping them to make that connection between sustainability, the brand, human forest, and you as a user and what you can be doing. So that's really in a nutshell how it came to be and really what our mission was. Um, but my background is regulation. I worked um for a consultancy here in London, advising companies on policy and their policy objectives. And so really in London, particularly, human forest was just an intersection of so many things that I was most passionate about in my experience. And then Augustine um, has a lot of mobility experience. So together we came together, um, along with Mike, who is a fabulous marketeer and um, And the brand, as you mentioned, is a huge part of this as well, which we're going to get to. And, and the three of us um, started Human Forest. It is a very fun and engaging brand. And I, I definitely would like to talk a little bit about it, understand the ideas behind it and, and how you've built it. And I can totally see also from being a rider, being a user um, of your service in London, how yeah, you managed to 
almost give people agency over these topics. So it's, there's gamification mm. around it. So you feel like you're contributing to something by choosing this mode. And then also if you are a German, especially, but maybe every human to some extent, if you like to save money and so on and make a good deal. And then you can also engage even more with these um, brands and make that um, um, a cheaper mm. or even a free experience. Can we uh, put some numbers at the beginning kind of of the discussion? Because I think you've seen um, tremendous growth. You're, you're quite successful. Your fleet size is expanding. Yeah. Now after London, you're, you're going to expand um, into the next big metropolitan area um, in Europe, Paris. So can you put some uh, numbers uh, around <laughs> the operations that you guys are yeah, already handling? Absolutely. I mean, every week at the moment is a record, which is surprising us given we're now entering the sort of winter, you know, down season. And um, we're seeing really high adoption from our users. So we have doubled the number of trips that our active users are doing each month um, over the last year. So I think what that's really telling us is that people are embracing human forest as a commuter option and and that's really where we want to be is sort of giving people that option and to commute without incurring the cost of purchasing their own bike um, and allowing them that flexibility and we're now in 10 London boroughs so we started off in two London boroughs and so really expanding the footprint but at the same time we're increasing the density of bikes so we've got an density of around 33 bikes um, every square kilometre, which we think is really important metric to really grow that density. To, and we're seeing a strong correlation between an increase in density and an increase in number of rides per user and um, per active user per month or, or per week, because it's ensuring that those bikes are available and there's enough of them to be relied upon as that transport um, choice. I think... Um, you know, our rides, uh, we did half a million rides um, last month. Um, so we're just continuing to see, um, you know, huge growth in that sense. That's really amazing. And I think this idea of maybe meshing a mobility network with an ad platform and um, knowing your users well and putting them in touch with brands, mm -hmm. like you said, somehow has been floating around this new mobility world for a few years, I would say. I've worked in new mobility like 10 years and some years ago, maybe four years ago, visited, um, for example, the OFO founders in mm. Beijing and they were talking about, we're building this um, um, location-based ad network and so on. But it's only human forest that I know as an example that's really managed to make this work for the advertisers that, that um, you have a portfolio of companies that's working with you and can run campaigns on your system, mm. even in some, let's say, self-service ways. So they have uh, transparency into the success of those campaigns and so on. Can you describe a little bit um, this aspect of the um, of your overall um, product? What does that look like for the end user, but also for the brands you're, you're working with? Yeah, absolutely. So for the user, when they open the app to book a bike, they will get a full screen ad. Uh, but the ads are not commoditized ads in the sense that we're working with brands that we know our users will like. So we're not, and they need to be aligned with our vision as well. So they've got, for example, Whole Foods Market, which is big in London. And we had the Financial Times 
um, for a period there. And we've got lots of different organic, you know, environmentally minded brands that actually we think our users quite enjoy getting a bit of exposure to and perhaps a way of doing things differently or for, you know, shaking up, um, you know, their their choices in terms of their purchasing choices. Um, What we hear from the user, sorry, from the, um, the brands themselves is what they like is, you know, that full page ad or that full screen ad, which is, you know, more traditional. But what we've also created is a video channel as well. So people can view ads in return for more free minutes. So we really like, we all know the value of our eyeballs now, don't we? Like we, we know that our data and um, our eyeballs is valuable. So we want something back in return for that. So now, um, you know, a bit like the way that you have on YouTube, you can get into your app um, at any time of the day, not while you're riding, but um, view some ads or some video ads and then get credited with, with free minutes. So you can get up to three free minutes a day by viewing those ads. So having different kinds of mediums for for ads uh, for cust sorry for our our clients so that's the um the brands to portray their ads and and market their products is really important as well in this sort of more multimedia day and age. Mm-hmm. And I think what I've uh, learned from also visiting your um, team and so on um, is that you see basically much higher click through rates and then people yeah. finishing. <laughs> Uh, deeper into the videos than other ad platforms. Um, if marketeers would know um, that basically no one finishes a 30-second <laughs> video, but in your case, um, people yeah, basically earn credits, earn additional free minutes uh, doing so. And so they, the brands basically get much closer to them. Exactly. The brands are guaranteed um, your eyeballs for the entire video because the minute the, the, the free minute is collected at the at the end of that video but yeah our click-through rates are you know they obviously vary but with some of our really strong campaigns it's been up to six times uh, the click-through rate of facebook Mm -hmm. and and instagram some of those more household Mm -hmm. um platforms in such a setup that most of our uh, listeners the community and mobility is not really familiar with like we all kind of very much familiar maybe with operations, KPIs or so around chat mobility by now, but this ad area is totally new. It's been kind of a bit talked about, mm. but I, I think most people have never had their own experiences. What are you encountering as the kind of bottlenecks? Um, for example, right now, is it available ad space or more um, marketing partners, brands that can come through your filter? Um are they yeah. maybe interested, but the scale is just not where, where it's worth their time? Maybe? Um, so kind of yeah. what, what uh, bottlenecks are you coming up? That's in? really interesting, that point on scale. So as you mentioned earlier, we've doubled the fee in London. And so that means that as a channel, we've suddenly become a lot more powerful and our reach has expanded dramatically. Also, we're adding... Mm-hmm increasing our user base by 10% every every week sometimes. Um, so we're really starting to get a good picture of what our demographic looks like. Um, we also complete, you know, user surveys and things in return for three minutes to learn a bit more about our, our users and, and what it is that they want to hear um, from our brands. Mm-hmm. But um, early on, absolutely, with the ad platform, we just didn't quite have the reach for some of those bigger brands. And so we were really focusing a bit more on local brands, um, you know, even sort of using the platform to really support 
um, some of the high street brands that, or some high street shops um, in the areas where we were expanding to and using that as a way, particularly post-COVID, to bring people back to the high street and with, you know, marketing and, and promotional things that we were um, mm-hmm. uploading onto the platform. But now with, you know, a fleet that's double the size and, and as I mentioned, the growing customer base, we are seeing a lot more sort of international brands um, or brands that you would, you know, you and I would both both know. So, you know, the Financial Times, for example, um, you know, the newspaper, and we've signed with sort of real estate companies um, and we're working on quite a few exciting huge brands at the moment and so that will be you know mm-hmm. great to bring that to life next spring but based on your experience are there some thresholds for example that you have in mind in terms of number of active users that you would say okay if you if you're at this level you can probably si- begin to sign up your first local brands but then this is kind of what um, yeah. other this level other national brands require mm, it's a good what orders of magnitude uh, it's so different actually about? it's really because the brands that we work with and um, particularly as the brands get bigger their marketing teams get bigger and they get sort of more mm-hmm. fragmented in the sense that we've got you know experimental mm-hmm. budget we've got sustainability budget we've got budgets mm-hmm. for activation so with some of the brands we work with and um, for example a huge um international sushi chain um, they wanted just us to support in an activation for one new shop. So in that sense, it doesn't mm-hmm. matter how big the reach mm-hmm. is. It's as long as you've got the right reach and audience just within a small local community. Mm-hmm. So it really varies. Mm-hmm. Um, with another um, clothing sort of e-commerce platform that we were using, they were just really interested about the alignment um, between Human Forest and themselves and the well-being angle so they just wanted to use mm-hmm. us the, use the platform to really deliver those objectives those marketing objectives and it wasn't so much about the click-through rate or um the absolute outcome it was more around the general sense of the brand and i think they were also talking about it to their employees and putting it in some of their promotional materials and um, that they liked the they got a lot of value from the brand alliance rather than necessarily the, the click-through rate and, and the outcome there, the marketing outcome. Mm-hmm. And you basically now have this fast-growing, you know, bike-sharing operation that is also at the same time an ad network and where you are managing to yeah. bring um, ever more sophisticated um, brands on and basically provide that as partially a benefit to your users in terms of free riding mm. minutes, but also um, basically a revenue stream for yourself. And then you mentioned you are coming originally from kind of a consulting, also public policy background. And I wonder how you're looking at this uh, kind of area relationship to um, cities, but also maybe um, um, financing of bike sharing and shared mobility mm-hmm. by cities. Because traditionally, I would say that's kind of been the source for some operators um, to spread their systems in Europe. Um, in a number of German towns, the first 30 minutes are for free, but paid for by the city, basically. Mm. Um, and now we have um, tenders every quarter in Europe somewhere where basically operators get assigned for multi-year contracts to run and sometimes with um, subsidized rates. Where do you um, see kind of um, human forests interact with um, cities in terms of licenses, but also financing in the future. Mm. Because essentially you're like finding creative workarounds to 
finance almost like a public transportation when that used to be originally the role of the city. So do you see them stepping in? Yeah, I mean, in your cases as well, or are you kind of not not going too mm -hmm. bad on that? I mean, you're right. We've got a micro-mobility business, but we've got a SaaS business that's growing on the side. And eventually our real vision is to give much cheaper, even you know, more free minutes to users via the SaaS platform or via the ad, the, the ad platform. Um, so we, I mean, we do see the role of cities as really important um, to collaborate and partner in terms of implementing the schemes. But in terms of looking for subsidies from there, from the city councils, I think that's, um, that's an area we don't really want to get into. I think for us, it's around <laughs> um, really pushing the ad platform and allowing us to mm -hmm. take ownership of that and the ability for us to, to deliver free mobility to, to residents and cities um, and using companies um, as a conduit for that. Mm -hmm. To what extent do you see human forest in the future sharing this experience, maybe even technology that you're currently building around managing this ad network yeah. um, with other operators, um, basically turning that into um, its own That's definitely, um, B2B product. Yeah, we're definitely exploring the B2B angle and we have a pilot um, that will be underway next year with another mobility company. And so that is, mm -hmm. yeah, definitely, you've hit the nail on the head there. That's definitely something where we're, we're heading, where we can kind of license the software. Um, as an as another revenue stream. And would you see yourselves um, basically only sharing technology that was built in this area or even um, being the interface to these brands, basically extending the um, real estate that you have available also with other operators and kind of pushing um, we would, ad partners their yeah, way? Yeah, I mean, we could definitely support in pushing ad partners their way, but I think that'll be a relationship that they hold with their own clients mm -hmm. and we will be yeah. simply providing the the framework and the the technology for them to do so but that's not to say mm -hmm. um we won't be supporting where we can and and helping them to get their own clients but but they will be the sort of manager of that and they will also be the ones managing their own platform to to run the ads to their users mm -hmm. yeah right i think Basically, every shared mobility operator has a number of uh, dimensions to optimize. Sometimes I think a bit more complication than other businesses, mm -hmm. your operations on the street and then your technology um, and then um, the city relationship. But you have another dimension now with kind of uh, the, the ad network, mm -hmm. um, the, the brands that you're managing and so on. Where um, do you see most... Um, of the challenges um, at the moment in your um, journey of um, things that you still need to explore or find out, but is most of your energy as a founder team yeah. go at the moment? Um, we're fundraising at the moment, so that's been um, taking a lot of our a lot of our energy. Uh, by the time this podcast goes live, we would have announced an extension to our Series A, and a lot of that mm -hmm. funding had been put into developing the ad platform. Uh, so very much for us, the focus is on optimizing operations because, as we know, your know, operations and keeping the costs and cost down and through innovation is really important. So we're definitely, you know, very hot on that as a management team, um, growing the SaaS platform, and then also really focused on on our expansion. 
um, and we're next in Europe for, for human forest and where do we see the best um, markets for us and, and how can we roll out that um, roll out most effectively in a way that's sustainable and sort of economically viable with a real mind to um, the current, you know, current conditions for, for fundraising. Mm. Yeah, and definitely very, very difficult conditions at the moment. There were much easier times <laughs> and still uh, you and the team managed to do it again and again because you are just successful on the streets. Can you talk a little bit about uh, like your choice of markets to expand to? Because that's also, I'd say, maybe a bit unusual. You launched in London because presumably that's where you were based. You worked in London many years before that. Um, but maybe I'm just also making this up. Why did you choose London yeah. in, the, in the first I place? Mean, and why now go to such a competitive next second city instead of, for example, rolling up smaller markets? How, how do you guys think about that? Yeah, I mean, we love big markets because we want to, as we sort of touched on earlier, we want scale with the ad platform. And so we want to go to markets where, one, there's an established ridership, you know, user base. There's great cycling infrastructure. And also with the market that we've chosen, there's a competitive landscape that we know very well. Um, because we've come, mm -hmm. we've come up against the incumbent operators in London already. And we chose London because London really lags other European capitals when it comes to shared mobility. When we launched mm -hmm. in London, there was only the Boris bike, which was non-electric um, mm -hmm. and docked. Uh, so there was a really huge opportunity. I mean, there's half the number of bikes in London that there are in Paris. So there's still a huge way to go. And, and we just see this, you know, in our own data is that even through the mm -hmm. winter months when we think that things will be a bit slower, we really see mm -hmm. that, you know, people, London's catching up, um, but there's still mm -hmm. a lot, there's huge amount of potential. And Paris, uh, you already mentioned, is much more competitive. They are really progressive on shared mobility issues. Um, and yet you are um, planning to enter there next year. How would you describe the, um, openness of that market compared to London? Because you mentioned boroughs before, not everyone outside London kind of knows about this. I believe you have to go step by step, kind of neighborhood by neighborhood in London. Yeah, London, then exactly. London's a real patchwork, as you say, it's step by step. So there's 32 London boroughs. And if you want to operate in 32 London boroughs, you need a license with every single one. And, and you need to deal with the transport officers at, at each of those are all different. And there's been a lot of great progress made in London by London councils um, alongside an organisation called Como UK and with the help of Transport for London to create one agreement that is, can be more or less the same for each of those boroughs. Mm -hmm. um, but there are still real nuances. And as I said, you know, the relationships are held with each of those individual boroughs. So it's a pretty challenging and labour-intensive process to to expand in London. Uh, Paris, where, as you say, we're, we're going to expand next year, and um, we just need to deal with one transport authority. So that's going to be a real luxury for us. Um, and the reason we are attracted to Paris um, is they, there's a real gap in the market when it becomes to aff an affordable solution, um, which is enabled through our, through our ad our ad our ad tech platform. Uh, at the moment, there's operators that um, have been operating in London. Um, and so we know that the performance that we get against those operators um, with our you know, unique proposition. 
So for us, um, mm-hmm. I mean, it's going to be a lot of work, of course. Um, and each market, is, it's never copy paste, but we do have a good sense of how our our proposition will will resonate with with the Parisians. Mm-hmm. One of the kind of key metrics that every operator has in mind is always the like rights per day, and I think through. Pluto and other sources now that's becoming more transparent that you kind of look up what others are making yeah. and so on. And, and I believe that's one of the ones that you guys are also um, um, communicating about how um, your, your bikes are being used much more per day for more mm. trips per day than the average most other um, operators. How are you looking at Paris in terms of their um, their um Yeah, publicly funded mm. or partially publicly funded bike sharing system. Is that something that will be um, yeah, kind of a challenge to compete against or you think you are going to be kind of uh, totally different mm-hmm. because of the f- more free-floating setup or the... Yeah, Paris, um, um, Paris actually runs quite a structured parking system. So it's almost virtual docks and you okay. have to end your ride within a designated parking bay and you're not able to end mm-hmm. your ride unless you are within that that area so it does kind of have mm-hmm. the same restrictions as the Vileb service uh, but you know human forest is a completely different offering and um, with the electric nature and um, the culture and the community that we've created and mm-hmm. um, i think that's really important for our users and um, so we're we're hopeful <laughs> <laughs> and rightfully so, I would say. I'm, I'm mm-hmm. quite sure. And Devil is always in the details. And I also visited your yeah, operations hub in London this summer. It was totally impressive. It was totally amazing, basically. Um, for, um, basically, um, like hundreds of uh, bikes coming in each night. And then there are like all these workstations uh, lined mm. up where it's like super efficient. And then there's refurbishment going on on the floor above basically yeah. almost nothing gets thrown away it was super impressive uh, i'm so glad you think, highlighted yeah, the rider <laughs> yeah i mean that was super impressive but it's not visible to the user but the rider experience the app experience the brand but i think in the end the cost like you mentioned um is so important and that comes from how these operations are mm. being run yeah i'm really glad um, you mentioned a bit about the repairs we're really proud of that And, um, you know, for example, if a seat, we've got a lovely brown leather seat. If we get mm-hmm. a little scrap, like a, a hole in the seat, we just replace the leather on top and sew it back on. So we have a whole team of people that are focused on doing that. Um, and then lots of other different components. So the frame, we can really extend the life of the frame, we think, to at least 10 years and, and just replacing the components oh. along the way. Um, and that's something that we're always looking to improve. Um, but we are, yeah, we're absolutely proud of um, the focus that our team has on on repairing and and really ensuring minimal minimal uh, waste or, or recycling. Yeah, that's super impressive. I've never seen something like this in, in our context in our industry. Um, and I wonder maybe if we zoom a little bit out more. We talked a lot about human forest right now. It's a super interesting case. But you are in this industry for um, several years. You guys founded like three plus years ago. And a lot has kind of changed and uh, turned over. And there were predictions and then Corona came and uh, we're still kind of sorting things out in, in some cases. What was something that you saw across the whole industry, maybe not just human forest in the last few years that was a surprise to you that uh, you didn't anticipate or you thought would go differently? Is there something that you 
that mm. kind of stood out where you think this took a different turn than we maybe would have said in this podcast four years ago? Yeah. Gosh, I mean, I think we were, we were always really confident that we were going to get convert users and um, across to human forest and but not just to human forest but to grow that level of cycling and to really actually fight with the car you know we're not fighting with the competitors we're fighting with the modal shift and I think we have been surprised at the continued uptake not just you know what coronavirus didn't cause just kind of a peak and then fall down we've just seen this constant climb And I think the whole industry, particularly in London, where you know cycling hasn't been so popular, the mm-hmm. previously, the look of the city has changed. You know, when you're commuting to work mm-hmm. in the morning, there is a really huge cycling community with a lot having been invested in infrastructure. Yes. So the city is actually starting to look different, and we've had a lot of those changes be sustained and grow in post coronavirus. So I think we're excited by the accelerated speed and the the rapid adoption of cycling you know mm-hmm. taking from our european neighbors and that the british are really embracing it and also through all weather conditions has um been something that we're really really pleased to see yeah that's something that is really so different from one country to another what you mentioned about the weather conditions <laughs> yeah and i agree with you once you kind of of course uh take a look uh it cannot be unseen you cannot go to london right now and not Um, see these uh, shared bikes everywhere and um, basically also uh, the green human forest bikes. What's something that you um, would say for the next few years um, that would help you a lot um, to unlock a lot of more, a lot more growth, continue on this path? Mm-hmm. What's the biggest um, lever there that, um, that maybe is not, not under your control? It's um, really... Investment in cycling infrastructure to make people feel safe to to ride. I mm-hmm. think that's really important because if people don't feel safe um, and protected whilst they ride, then they're not. We're going to have sort of fear with the cyclists, and so we really wanted to see continued investment in the green, you know, in the transition away to away from polluting modes of transport. And we obviously work as much as we can advocating for that shift and promoting the investment but it's a bit tricky with the current government we've seen a rollback on on some of the green agenda um, and we're who knows but we're likely to go to a labor government at the next election and it's just making sure that the green agenda and transport um really does stay front of mind and um, to the point that we can continue to transform the way that people people move And we don't just fall back into sort of the bad habits of the pre-COVID era. Hmm. I can totally understand that and relate to what you're saying. I think that's totally not a given the direction that we are we kind of took for a mm. while and that we think makes more sense. It's not like an um, automated uh, journey now. It I could know. also very well go the other way. Particularly and I, as I think that's no, oh, sorry. <laughs> Oh, sorry. Please no, I was just going to say with the economic climate as it is, um, the cost of living crisis and, and also sort of fiscal responsibility, it's really important that we don't lose the gains that we've made in the green agenda and that we really advocate as you know, a generation and as companies um, to continue that and to show that it's a priority 
um, regardless um, of where things are. I was at an event uh, some weeks ago um, with like African entrepreneurs and there was a guy saying, um, he was basically like an impact startup and, and he said, um, if you want people to join your good cause of helping the world, you basically have to throw a better party than the ones destroying <laughs> yeah. it. And I was like, oh. it's kind of like um, intuitively, but then this sentence keeps coming back to me because also like, for example, the choice of um, bike, uh, biking now in London, even when it might be raining a bit, um, is that something that's kind of forced upon you and that um, you have to forego your, your luxuries that you had so far? Or is that um, a great feeling, something that you um, are happy about and mm. aspire to do, basically? And I think, um, I mean, um, I think once you try it, it's really awesome. Yeah. And uh, I've kind of... Uh, I've written through the streets in London also with, with members of uh, your team. And they said, okay, watch this. In six minutes, we're there. I said, no way. <laughs> like going from one place to another. It's and crazy. Um, I think, but I think that's, um, yeah, we need to, it's kind of like a window of opportunity to get people to try new ways. Mm -hmm. And eventually it would have been talked about so much that like we won't hear it anymore. People don't want to hear it anymore. Um, and um, I, I hope that's, um, more people will uh, try. And I think Human mm -hmm. Forest is uh, providing an excellent product, not not one that's like a, I don't know, like this half-baked solution like we had in some of the early schemes. I yeah. dare to say maybe Velip is one of those, but if you like take one of the bikes, um, it's not like a shared bike is a shared bike. It's basically how it is kept up, what exactly is the, the app experience, the smoothness of the whole experience. And mm. maybe also how it makes you feel to be seen riding one of those. That's right, a because, really um, important um, point. Really important point around the um, around the bike's availability, and that's something that, as our ops team, we really strive. It's one of our KPIs because if you have a new user, seventy so percent of our um, user acquisition is organic, so they they see the bike on the street, and if they see the bike on the street, they download the app, yeah. and then they go to hire that particular bike, and it's not available or it's in a damaged state or and um, has low battery or anything like that you kind of lose the customer so for us given that high level of organic acquisition and what we, we want to be a service that people can rely on we are very focused on ensuring 95% uptime on the bikes and so that we've really mm -hmm. got a service that's there available and to a very high standard um, and then that kind of whole user experience is flows through in the app which we you know hope is really intuitive and and fun mm -hmm. fun to use like the branding and everything that mm -hmm. you've mentioned it makes people feel good um and they just want to mm. ride you on forest <laughs> yeah right yeah don't have to but want to yeah well, okay this is uh, great i mean thank you for sharing um some insights from your everyday and your journey and your intentions and i hope that um, everyone will get a chance to try your product <laughs> either in London or soon also in Paris. When are you planning to launch next year? Can you already share? Uh, we're, or... we're working on that, but um, okay. <laughs> only by the summer. We hope, we hope we'll be there by the summer. By the summer for sure. All right, cool. So Autonomy Paris next year, everyone listening will probably be there and uh, then move London after that for sure is your yeah. chance. And yeah, we'll, <laughs> we'll, be at, we'll be at Autonomy. We'll be at Autonomy Paris, so... Look forward oh, to meeting okay. some of the listeners right. there, I hope. <laughs> yeah. All right, cool. Thanks, Caroline, Thanks for so taking much. the time today talking with this.
All the best to you. <laughs> Thanks, Kenneth. Bye. Bye-bye.